Let's pray together. <clears throat> Our Father in heaven, as we, as we open your word together today, as we open up Psalm 35, Father, will you send your spirit to us to give us understanding of the text that we're reading, give us a, a greater love for our Savior, a greater hatred for sin, a greater delight in your infinite wisdom and providence by which you rule and govern all things. Father, help us to cling tightly to you, to our King Jesus as our only deliverer, our only redeemer. Help us to know and understand the very word of life that you give to us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You turn with me as you're taking your seat. Turn with me to Psalm number 35. Psalm number 35. As we continue this brief series through the imprecatory psalms, those psalms of of cursing, those psalms by which the psalmists pray for the judgment and condemnation of their enemies. I'm going to pose a question to you. Have you ever been chased? I mean, not just in a game of tag, but where you felt a sense of, of bodily injury or bodily harm impending upon you. You ever had a, a situation where you know someone intended you harm? It's a silly example, but I remember as a, as a young boy, this is 40 years ago, uh, but I still remember it vividly. Uh, I was no doubt up to some unsupervised mischief, and my brother and I found ourselves being pursued by some men in a pickup, and we fled to the back, and there's some wooded area, a thicket behind us, and, and hiding in the woods. The deafening sound of your own breath. You can almost hear your own heart beat, because we knew if they caught us. We were dead ducks. And I, I, 40 years later, I remember that sense of impending doom. Well, I'm still here, so they didn't find us, but... We didn't even dare to breathe, and, and we watched or we listened to this truck went up and down the alley as it looked for us, and we, we, it was a childish fear, and I certainly, as I recall, probably deserved that, but there's, there's this motif that's in pretty much every, you know, a lot of kids' movies and even horror films where you have this idea of, of a bully chasing someone. And then out of the shadows, out of the alley, comes the hero, comes the bigger champion to rescue them. Well, that's the motif that we find in Psalm 35. It's a psalm of David, and he writes from the perspective of one hunted, of one chased, of one fearing for his very life. And what's interesting is the terms that he uses, he uses them interchangeably. There are times when he uses the term like, like he's being hunted, the, the idea of predator and prey. There are other times he uses martial language, military language, where he's being pursued by an army. There are other times he uses the language as if he's a rabbit being chased by a hungry lion. And then other times he uses legal language, judicial language, where he's being attacked in a civil sphere. And he sort of mixes those metaphors together, but the end result is, is a psalm with a universal kind of appeal. That as we are being hunted, whether physically and bodily, or whether our reputation and our name has been slandered, in either case, or any of those cases, 
we have the hope of Christ given to us, offered to us in Psalm 35. It reminds the children of God that we have a champion. We have one who will fight for us no matter the nature of the threat. No matter the nature of the threat. The title of today's sermon is Contend, O Lord. I take that from the very first line in the psalm, Contend, O Lord. And the message of this psalm is we've worked through some of these imprecatory psalms and, and tried to figure out a way that we can appropriately pray these and how we, we ought to pray the imprecatory psalms. It's not an optional, maybe we should, maybe we shouldn't. This is a must for us as Christians. And I think the more we study them, the more it becomes apparent to us the necessity of praying in this way. But this psalm in particular teaches us an important lesson. It's this. God's people will often face undeserved attack. But the Lord sees, hears, and will respond as if he himself has been attacked. That's the message. That we will often in this life face attack that is undeserved. Not because we are innocent, holy, but because we didn't deserve that particular attack. And yet, God sees that. He hears that. And he will respond at the appropriate time as if he himself has been attacked. The psalm, we read Psalm 35, it has three stanzas. I'm not, the sermon I haven't necessarily organized according to the stanzas. I've organized it more thematically. But you can see verses 1 through 10 comprise the first stanza. Verses 11 through, through um, 18 are the second stanza. And verses 19 to 28 mark the third one. And there's the, sometimes in Hebrew poetry, it's often, it's not linear. It's circular. It comes back around to make the same point again and again and again for emphasis. But I want to organize this with four headings, four, four observations that we make. The first one will be the longer one, uh, but then we'll, we'll make some observations on the other three as well. And the first one is this. Opposition to God's people is opposition to God. Opposition to God's people, from God's perspective, and it ought to be from ours as well, is opposition against Him. Secondly, God's people will suffer for doing right. Not only that we will suffer when we happen to be doing right, but we will suffer for doing right. Thirdly, waiting upon the Lord in prayer is the Christian's proper response to this. And lastly, we'll see in Psalm 35 that God's people find true fellowship in the suffering. We find true fellowship in that suffering. Let's read together Psalm 35 and, and tune your ear perhaps to hear some of those points as we go. Hear the word of God, a psalm of David. Contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Take hold of shield and buckler and rise for my help. Draw the spear and javelin against my pursuers. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. Let them be put to shame and dishonor who seek my life. Let them be turned back and disappointed who devise evil against me. Let them be like chaff before the wind with the angel of the Lord driving them away. Let their way be dark and slippery with the angel of the Lord pursuing them. For without cause they hid their net for me. Without cause they dug a pit for my life. Let destruction come upon him when he does not know it. 
and let the net that he hid ensnare him. Let him fall into it to his destruction. Then my soul will rejoice in the Lord, exulting in his salvation. All my bones shall say, O Lord, who is like you, delivering the poor from him who is too strong for him, the poor and needy from him who robs him? Malicious witnesses rise up. They ask me of things that I do not know. They repay me evil for good. My soul is bereft. But I, when they were sick... I wore sackcloth. I afflicted myself with fasting. I I prayed with head bowed on my chest. I went about as though I grieved for my friend or my brother. As one who laments his mother, I bowed down in mourning. But at my stumbling, they rejoiced and gathered. They gathered together against me. Wretches whom I did not know tore at me without ceasing. Like profane mockers at a feast, they gnash at me with their teeth. How long, O Lord, will you look on? Rescue me from their destruction, my precious life from the lions. I will thank you in the great congregation, in the mighty throng, I will praise you. Let not those who rejoice over me, who are wrongfully my foes, and let not those who wink the eye, who hate me without cause, for they do not speak peace but against those who are quiet in the land. They devise words of deceit. They open wide their mouths against me. They say, aha, aha, our eyes have seen it. You have seen, O Lord. Be not silent. O Lord, be not far from me. Awake and rouse yourself for my vindication, for my cause, my God and my Lord. Vindicate me, O Lord, my God, according to your righteousness. And let them not rejoice over me, Let them not say in their hearts, Aha, our heart's desire. Let them not say, We have swallowed him up. Let them be put to shame and disappointed altogether who rejoice at my calamity. Let them be clothed with shame and dishonor who magnify themselves against me. Let those who delight in my righteousness shout for joy and be glad and say evermore, Great is the Lord who delights in the welfare of his servant. Then my tongue shall tell of your righteousness and of your praise all the day long. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Let's notice together this first truth that just bursts from the scene of Psalm 35. And it is this, that, that opposition to God is oppos- or opposition to God's people is opposition to him. Notice the, the vivid language here. Go back to the, ver- the first six verses. David just just bursts open here. If this were a movie, it would be like you you see the opening credits and all of a sudden, there's no warm-up. All of a sudden, there's the, the camera goes on David and he's running at full tilt. And as he's running, he cries out, Contend for me, O Lord. Contend with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Take hold of shield and buckler and rise for my help. David cries out urgently for the Lord to take up arms, to stand between him and the one who is pursuing him. And here's the vivid picture. David's being pursued and he calls out to the Lord to come to rescue him. He calls out to the Lord to turn his enemy around and chase the enemy instead. David is asking, Lord, will you make the predator, the prey. 
the one who is pursuing me to take my life, will you turn him from predator to prey? And in verse 5 and 6 in particular, there's a unique phrase. It's only here and in Psalm 34, this idea of the angel of the Lord. It's the only time it shows up in the Psalter. Verse 5, let them be like chaff before the wind with the angel of the Lord driving them away. Verse 36 is even more vivid. Let their way be dark and slippery with the angel of the Lord pursuing them. Some of you might be prone to claustrophobia and the idea of being hunted in a wet, damp, dark, slippery cave is just, you could just sort of feel it as I describe it. You're wanting to, you're wanting to go out in the, in the open sunshine just thinking about that. Derek Kidner says the dark picture in verse 6 is made even more desperate by the almost gurgling liquidity of the word for slippery and by the thought of the pursuer close behind. Calm defiance of God's will, of God will not survive the conditions that evil itself eventually produces. That's the image. And he says, may this be the case, that that's per- the one who's pursuing me would actually find himself slipping on moss-covered rocks in the darkness as the angel of the Lord pursues him, and he has no way to escape. The character in a, a crime novel who had spent time in the tunnels of Vietnam describes the darkness like this. There was no name for it, so he made up a name. It was the darkness, the damp emptiness you'd feel when you were down there alone in those tunnels. It was like you were in a place where you felt dead and buried in the dark, but you were alive. And you were scared. Your own breath kind of echoed in the darkness loud enough to give you away, or so you thought. I don't know. It's hard to explain. We just called it the black echo. That universal sense of of fear and dread. And David says, may it be that the one who pursues me experiences that and experiences this is this is a a metaphor it's it's a it's poetic language to describe the way of all the wicked the way who the one who thinks he can escape god's view that he can escape god's judgment that he can escape the word of god and david said "May, may it be the reality that he finds himself slipping and sliding and unable to escape now why did david pray for Yahweh to take up the fight against those that pursued him. It's because he understood something very important. An attack on God's people is an attack on him. And we see this vividly in the New Testament. I saw this, I read this to you last week. But a reminder, when in, in Acts chapter 9, when, when Saul is on his way, Luke says, breathing out threats of murder. Saul was the angry lion. He was the pursuer. He was the one with letters in his hand from the chief priest to go and, and, and lock up men and women who confessed the way. And you know what happened? The blinding light overcame Saul, and he hears this voice from heaven saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It was personal. Saul wasn't, wasn't pursuing some random human being. The New Testament pictures for us that Christ said, no, you're, you're going after me. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And this isn't a new concept. 
This isn't new at all. In Jeremiah chapter 2, Israel is described in this way. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. Now think about the image. In all of God's redemptive plan, Israel was the first fruits. I mean, this is the down payment. This is, this is the first of much to be harvested. And, and the, Jeremiah says, Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. All who ate of it incurred guilt. Disaster came upon them, declares the Lord. Why? Because it belonged to God. God took it personally. Nehemiah understood this as well. One of my favorite scenes is in Nehemiah chapter 4. They, they were building the wall. They had opposition from every sphere, inside and out. They had traitors in their midst. They had those of the Jewish people who were on the take from the Gentile overlords. They had the Gentiles threatening them and rumors of war and assassinating uh, Nehemiah's character and all these things. And in the midst of this, Nehemiah says, he understood this. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other, and each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me, and I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread, and we are separated on the wall far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there, our God will fight for us. Why? Because an attack on the people of God was an attack on God himself. Why is this important? We, we forget sometimes, don't we? In the midst of, of the persecution that, that, that we encounter, when our names, are, our reputations are slandered, when we see the church of Jesus Christ mocked and, and, and slandered, we forget that God has so closely identified with us as his people that he takes that reproach upon himself. He will not stand by and allow his own name to be maligned, attacked, slandered, and persecuted. The day is coming when God will rouse himself and deal justly with all who have opposed him. But in the meanwhile, in this age we will experience persecution and suffering. Even when we have done the right thing, in fact, often because we have done the right thing, we will encounter suffering. We will encounter persecution. Even when we have treated even our enemies with dignity and respect. That's, that's the second thing that we notice here in Psalm 35. Look at verse 7. For without cause... They hid their net for me. See, here's this hunting language again. For without cause, they hid their net for me. Without cause, they dug a pit for my life. Then look down at verse 12. They repay me evil for good. My soul is bereft. But I, when they were sick, I wore sackcloth. I afflicted myself with fasting. I, I prayed with head bowed on my chest. I went about as though I grieved for my own friend or brother. I, I, I went about as though one who laments his own mother. 
David said, I actually sought to do them good. And they repaid me evil for good without cause. And we saw this in our New Testament reading just just last week in John chapter 15. As as Justin read in, in John 16, Jesus is continuing that statement. And Jesus applies the words here that we find in verse 19. Let not those rejoice over me who are wrongfully my foes, and let not those who wink the eye who hate me without cause. In John 15, Jesus applies those words to himself. And by doing so, he demonstrates the degree to which he personally identifies with the unjust suffering of his people. And also, he literally took that suffering upon his own body and soul. Jesus says in John 15, this happened to fulfill the word that is written in their law. They hated me without cause. When the Advocate comes, Jesus says, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you will bear witness also, because you have been with me from the beginning. These things I have spoken to you so that you may be kept from stumbling. They will put you out of the synagogue. But an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. These things they will do because they did not know the Father or me. But these things I have spoken to you so that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told you of them. So in other words, Jesus is saying, because of who I am and because of their hatred of me without cause, they will also hate you when you're doing my will. They will put you out of the synagogue, which is supposed to be my house, a house of prayer. They're going to put you out for doing what I've commanded you to do. When you stand in the synagogue and you say that all of the scriptures, Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, all revealed that I am the Messiah, that Jesus of Nazareth is the anointed one. He is the brother, like Moses, raised up from among the people. When you stand in the synagogues and you say such things, they're going to put you out. When you offer them eternal life in God's own Son, they will hate you. They will despise you. They will throw you out. And in the synagogue in ancient Israel, it wasn't just that they throw you out of the church. This was the civil sphere as well. They will erase you. They will cancel you from society. Not on the occasion when you happen to be doing good, but because you're doing the right thing because you're doing what I have said to do. Derek Kidner, once again, he says, hatred without cause is such a basic response of evil towards good that Jesus saw verse 19 not as David's strange misfortune, but as, as, as his own predestined lot. Now think about this. If our Lord, if the sinless and perfect God man was hated without cause for coming into the world and offering eternal life to all who would believe, the one who never harmed anyone. What ought we to expect to happen to us as his people? If he was hated without cause, what ought we to expect? Well, Peter answers this question, doesn't he? In 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning verse 21, he says, For to this you have been called. 
since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Who, he who did no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, who being reviled was not reviling in return, while suffering he was uttering no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that having died to sin, we might live to righteousness. By his wounds you were healed, and for you were continually straying like sheep. But now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Peter says, Peter has a, introduces a concept here. When we think about suffering in this life, and particularly suffering for doing good, what, what, what should we call that? Normal. Normal. That's what we ought to expect. Because our, our Savior himself endured that. Now understanding this, I think, has at least two benefits. For us to, to confront this reality in these imprecatory psalms, and, and, and we see this not just in the imprecatories, but, but in other psalms as well, when we understand this, this concept that we're going to be hated without cause, when we, when we really grasp that and, and, frankly, accept it, because we, we can sort of cognitively say, yeah, I see that's true. But we haven't embraced that. We haven't accepted that this really is reality. It'd be like somebody standing on top of a, of a 20-story building and not really accepting the reality of gravity. And just, well, it doesn't really apply to me. Well, we're about to find out, aren't we? In a similar way, the fact that we will be hated for doing the right thing is reality. And when we understand this, it has a couple of benefits. One, it, it, it helps cultivate in us a heavenly perspective because we can be tempted to be far too comfortable here and now, can't we? There, there is a part of us that is in love with this world. That's true, isn't it? There's a part of us that's in love with this world. And, and recognizing, just accepting the fact that we're going to be hated for doing the right thing helps push against that, that notion of our flesh. This world is not our home. Its people are not our brothers and sisters. The, the, the people with whom we work who hate Christ our neighbors, even our family members who are at enmity with the Lord are not our brothers and sisters. And when we accept that and accept the fact that we, we will often be hated and persecuted for who we are in Christ, it will cultivate in us an eager expectation, an anticipation of our glory, of the glory that awaits us. But there's a second Thing, and it helps protect, second benefit, it helps protect us against the temptation to make the world like us, to make the world fond of us by means of compromise. If we, if we assume, let's just kind of think this through, if we assume when the world hates us, oh, it must be because I've done something they don't like. It must be something that I've done wrong which means I need to change what I'm doing, right? Because if, if I, if, for instance, if I believe what the Bible teaches about, I don't know, human sexuality, and I, and, I, and I tell someone, this is what is true, this is what is real, this is how the world really works, 
this is what God will bless and this is what God will condemn. And I love them in saying that. And I'm hated for it. But see, if I haven't accepted the fact that the world is going to hate me for doing good, then at that very point I'll be tempted to say, well, maybe I, maybe I should repackage this message. Maybe I should change what I'm saying. Maybe I should change even what I believe. Maybe I need to step back and think, well, since the world hates this so much, maybe what I believe is wrong. You see where this goes. And we could, we could probably work through other examples, couldn't we, of things that the world despises. And we think, well, it's because maybe the message needs to change. No, Psalm 35 reminds us that God's people will often be hated for the very fact that we're doing good. For the very fact that we stand in truth and for truth. For the very fact that we are in Christ. Beloved, it's simply a fact that we will face tribulation in this life. And often, that persecution will come because of the righteousness of Christ that people see in us. Not because we have unjustly offended the world. Now, let's be honest. We can be personally offensive, and we ought to avoid that. I'm not talking about the things that we've, we've done evil, and we should repent of that. We ought to go to our lost neighbor and say, I am sorry that I did this, that I spoke that way to you, or I, I did this to you. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about when, when, when they hate us, when we've done the right thing. Let's consider a third observation when we think about this, think about this image that, that David has painted, this, this poetic image of being chased and pursued like, like a hunted animal. And, and, it, and, and the only reason that he's being chased and pursued is because he's done righteous things, because he's, he's been righteous before God and his enemies hate him for it. How do we respond to that? As, as the believer, as, as the child of God, what is, what is the, the right response for us in that situation? Lord, I, I, I've sought to live by, by your word. I've, I've sought to speak truth and love to my neighbor, and I'm hated for it. I'm being pursued. I'm being hunted. I'm being slandered. My reputation, my, my property, maybe my, my own person is being threatened. How do I respond? What do I do with that? We find in Psalm 35 that waiting upon the Lord in prayer is the Christian's proper response. It's seen in almost every single verse in the psalm. David is in constant prayer to the Lord. He's calling out to the Lord. He's, he's making his requests known to the Lord. And because those first two points are true, that we will have opposition, that opposition to the people of God is, is opposition against God himself, and the fact that we're going to face persecution because of righteousness, the proper response is to wait upon the Lord in prayer. And we see in Psalm 35 at least four specific things for which David prays. This help should, should help shape and inform our prayers. Four things, at least, that, God, that David prays for. One is he prays for the destruction of those who oppose the kingdom of God. He prays. He prays for the destruction of those who oppose the kingdom of God. And we've talked the last two weeks about what's, what's entailed in this. This is, of course, not our, our 
prayer for private vengeance or personal vengeance. This is not, this is not our, our private prayer for those who have personally offended us. But this is that God would do business with those who oppose him. And that God will do it one of two ways, and only two ways. God, either in his mercy, as he did with, the, with Saul of Tarsus, will slay them by his mercy, will cause them to be born again, will cause them to repent, and in that way, he will destroy that old man. Saul didn't get remodeled. He didn't get rehabbed. He got destroyed. And a new man took his place. And it is right for us to pray. As we look at, at, at the civil sphere, we look at our civil magistrate, we look at, at, at those, those things that we see that are, that are utterly wicked, and we can pray, Lord, one way or another, will you destroy this? Will you put them to shame? Will you, will you frustrate their plans? The net that they set for us, will you cause them to fall in it? I mean, make them go full Wiley Coyote. The anvil they set to fall on our head, let it fall on theirs instead, right? We can pray that way. We ought to pray that way. So we pray for the destruction. Look at verses 4 through 8. Look what David said. Now, David is, is alluding here specifically to the covenant curses that are found in Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy, there, there is an entire chapter on, here's the blessings that you will receive if you remain in covenant with God. On the other hand, here are the curses that you may rightly expect. David is calling for these very curses to come upon the heads of his enemies. Let them be put to shame, verse 4, and dishonor who seek after my life. Let them be turned back and disappointed who devise evil against me. Let them be like chaff before the wind with the angel of the Lord driving them away. Let their way be dark and slippery with the angel of the Lord pursuing them. For without cause they hid their net from me. Without cause they dug a pit for my life. Let destruction come upon him when he does not know it. And let the net that he hid ensnare him. Let him fall into it to his destruction. So there's, there's, there's a symmetry in that kind of justice, isn't there? The net that he set, let him fall. Let it fall on him. I think of Haman and his desire to destroy the people of Israel. And what did God do? He used Mordecai. He hung Haman on the very gallows that he built to destroy and kill Mordecai. There's a symmetry there. There's a justice there. And we ought to pray for such a thing. But there's a second thing we notice that throughout the psalm, David prays for. He prays for the deliverance of God's people. It is right for us, on the one hand, to pray for the destruction of our enemies, but also it's right to pray for our rescue and the rescue of other Christians. Look at verse 19, for example, 19 through 26. Let not those who rejoice over me, who are wrongfully my foes, let, and let not those wink the eye who hate me without cause. For they do not speak peace, but against those who are quiet in the land. They devise words of deceit. They open wide their mouths against me, saying, Aha, aha, our eyes have seen it. You have seen, O Lord, be not silent. O Lord, be not far from me. Awake and rouse yourself 
for my vindication. See, this is a courtroom scene now. He's been hunted like an animal. He's been pursued as if by a military. His reputation has been attacked. Now he's being attacked in the courtroom. And he cries out, Vindicate me, O Lord my God, according to your righteousness, and let them not rejoice over me. Let them not say in their hearts, Aha, our heart's desire. Let them not say, we have swallowed him up. Let them be put to shame and disappointed altogether who rejoice at my calamity. Let them be clothed with shame and dishonor who magnify themselves against me. This is both a prophecy and a promise. Paul said to the Colossian church, that he says, this is, this is exactly what Christ has done. He has put his enemies to open shame. He has frustrated their plans and he's put them to open shame. We saw today, even in our, our catechism, I, I jotted down a note as we were reciting that. In question 52, the, he said, how does Christ's return to judge the living and the dead comfort you? As we confess, this is true, we believe that Christ is going to return to judge the living and the dead. Listen to the answer. In all my distress and persecution, I turn my eyes to the heavens and confidently await as judge the very one who has already stood trial in my place before God and so has removed the whole curse from me. All his enemies and mine, he will condemn to everlasting punishment, but me and all his chosen ones, he will take along with him into the joy and the glory of of heaven. And that's the beautiful image that's in Psalm 24, where, where the, here's the, 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 the conquering king climbing up the holy mountain, and he's got a whole train of captives with him that he's leading up into the holy city. And he cries out, Oh, open up ancient doors that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? It's the Lord, mighty and strong. It is right for us to pray that God would deliver his people. As you see and you read about and you hear persecution in some far-off place, it is right, it is necessary for us to pray that God would deliver those dear saints. That God would so identify with them in their persecution that he would deliver them. That he would frustrate the plans of their enemies. There's a third request that David makes as he prays here. He prays for the destruction of those who oppose the kingdom of God. He prays for deliverance of God's people. But he also prays for an increase of faith and assurance in the midst of his persecution. Do you pray this way? Because, I mean, our, our impulse, isn't it, to just, Lord, just get me out of this. Lord, make it stop. Make the pain and the suffering go away. There's nothing wrong with praying for that. We, again, we, we pray for the deliverance of God's people. But David also, look back at verse 3. As, as David is calling upon the Lord in these very first urgent words, draw, draw the spear and javelin against my pursuers. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. Even as David is urgently calling out that the Lord would take up arms for his cause, he says, increase my faith. As I'm running... As I'm fleeing persecution. Lord, may your spirit 
testify to my spirit that I belong to you. That you are going to do everything that you say that you would do. That it is in you that I have hope. That it is in you that I have deliverance. That it is in you that my soul rests secure. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. We ought to pray. When we, in, in the midst of our own sorrow and suffering and persecution, and also as we observe that in other places, and we're praying for brothers and sisters that we've never even met, well, we pray that God would increase their faith, that, that the Spirit of the living God would testify to their souls that He is their salvation, that none can touch them to harm them, that Christ has already delivered them. Even if they perish in this age, even if their enemy kills their body, will they die with hearts that are increased in faith. They are assured of the love of Christ for them. We pray for one another this way. As we see one another going through just ordinary challenges, do we pray, Lord, increase my sister's faith, increase my brother's faith, make them know that you are their salvation. Make them where they know that they know that they know. Because doesn't the enemy use those very points to test us? To whisper? To lie to us and say, God doesn't really love you. God's forgotten about you. God doesn't see. God doesn't hear. We ought to be praying that the Spirit of God would, as it were, scream back at them, I am your salvation. It's the fourth thing that we see David pray. He prays with praise. I mentioned there were three stanzas. Each one of those, those stanzas end, verses 10 and 18 and 28, they all end with David declaring his confidence that God will indeed deliver him and all who trust in Yahweh. Look at verse 10. All my bones shall say. Have your bones ever spoken to you? What is he saying? From my inmost being, from my very frame, I will know this. All my bones shall say, O Lord, who is like you, delivering the poor from him who is too strong for him, poor needy from him who robs him. Lord, I know this in my bones. I know it's true. And I praise you because of who you are. You are such a God. Who does this? Then in, in verse 18, I will thank you in the great congregation, in the mighty throng, I will praise you. There's a confidence, even as David is pursued, even as, he, as he's being hunted. Then verse 28, then my tongue shall tell of your righteousness and of your praise all the day long. David prays with thanksgiving. So he prays for the destruction of those who oppose the kingdom. He prays for deliverance of God's people. He prays for an increase of faith and assurance. And he prays with thanksgiving. In the, the treasury of David, uh, meditations on the Psalms, great Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon makes this observation. He says, prayer is never lost. If it does not bless those for whom intercession is made... It shall bless the intercessors. 
Clouds do not always descend in showers upon the same spot from which the vapors ascended, but they come down somewhere, and in the same way, supplications yield their showers of mercy in some place or other. If our dove finds no rest for the sole of her foot among our enemies, it shall fly into our bosoms and bring an olive branch of peace in its mouth. Our prayers are never lost, saints. Even when we don't see the immediate effect, we don't see God's immediate response, know that even as we pray for our enemies, that God would either save them or destroy them. That that prayer will benefit us, even if it doesn't accomplish exactly what we asked for. Let's look lastly and briefly. God's people will find an abiding fellowship in shared suffering. We see this in the last two verses. David changes his focus from those who pursue him, those who are his enemies, those who are opposed to Christ. And he changes. It's just a little subtle shift in the pronoun, but he says, let those, verse 27, who delight in my righteousness, shout for joy and be glad and say evermore, great is the Lord who delights in the welfare of his servant. Then my tongue shall tell of your righteousness and of your praise all the day long. David is longing for a community of people who will join him in praise of God, even in the midst of persecution. Isn't this often our, our worst instinct? When, 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 when we are persecuted, we grumble, we complain, we fret, we worry. We don't devote ourselves to prayer. I mean, we'll offer up a prayer too. And then we go on like nothing's happened, and we don't submit ourselves to the strenuous, hard work of persistent and fervent prayer. And David said, I desire to have that in community. I desire to have others come along. Those who delight in my righteousness will shout for joy and be glad and say forevermore, great is the Lord who delights in the welfare of his servant. In the midst of shared suffering, saints, David and all the people of God, and we can expect to have a sweet fellowship together. You ever notice this? You ever been through hardship? Those, those of you who've been married a while, you know this. You've endured hardship together. What has that done? Your bonds are stronger. It wasn't the fellowship you would have drawn up. It wasn't the, the, the fellowship you would have asked for. But you look back on it and say, wow, the Lord knitted us together in a way even stronger than we were before. This happens in a church. This happens in a family. This happens in various contexts. When we suffer together, when we've endured hardship together, there there is a united chorus of praise and thanksgiving, and we are sanctified together in that truth. It's also in the fiery furnace and in the carrying of a cross that Christ fellowships with his people. Having already taught the people of God in his first epistle, Peter, in in chapter 2, we saw earlier, says this was your example. This was Christ set the example for you to endure suffering for his sake. Well, Peter takes it a step further and and presses this home even even more, more pointedly in 1 Peter 4, beginning in verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. I mean, isn't that remarkable? When, when testing comes, when trial comes, when persecution comes, 
don't look at this like, wow, that's really surprising. This is really unusual. No, this is ordinary. This is normal in the life of the Christian. He says, but to the degree you are sharing the sufferings of Christ. See, notice what he's saying here. You're, you're sharing. It's the same word that's, that's translated in many places as fellowship. You are having fellowship with Christ in his sufferings. He says, and when this is happening, but to the degree you are doing this, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. And it's you, plural, it's y'all may rejoice. If you, y'all, are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be put to shame, but is to glorify God in his name. For it's time for judgment to begin with the house of God. And if it begins first with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God must entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing good. See, in, in Peter chapter, 1 Peter chapter 2, he gives us Christ as an example in suffering, but more than that, an example of entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And that phrase is almost word for word again here. Together as God's people, those who suffer together will entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing good. Do we think about fellowship in this way? Often when we hear the word fellowship and it's kind of batted around in church, we think cupcake and punch and games and that kind of thing. And that's all fine and good, but is that really the fellowship that we have described to us in the Scriptures? Throughout the Scriptures, the fellowship that's presented to us in Christ is a fellowship of suffering. It's bearing one another's burdens. It's enduring and persevering with one another. And I've, I've been grieved over the years to see uh, people leaving churches, this one and others, for, for, for less than biblical reasons, and especially saying, well, I just want more fellowship. Well, what that usually means is I want more entertainment. I, I, I want to be entertained. That's not always the case. Sometimes it's I want more biblical instruction. But so when you hear someone say that, and maybe you've even heard that voice in your own thoughts, I want more fellowship. What you mean is I want to be entertained. Surely, we cannot be unaffected by a culture that's utterly addicted to the idea of entertaining, being amused. Neil Postman wrote a book back in the 80s called Amusing Ourselves to Death. He's exactly right. I commend the book to you. It's not a Christian book, but it's a, it's, a, it's a thoughtful, careful book. So studying and praying the Psalms provide the necessary correction to our flesh in, in these various ways. And God in his wisdom has given us these Holy Spirit-inspired prayers that we can pray the very words of our Savior. As Christ our head and we as his body, as he intercedes for us, 
we can put kind of flesh on that by praying the very words of Christ. And, and in these prayers, we're reminded what true fellowship in the Lord looks like. True fellowship is, is sweetened by a shared suffering. And, and, and our, our flesh naturally recoils against that. No, I mean, no one likes to suffer. No one likes to hurt. But we fail to consider what, what God is producing in that. Spurgeon, once again, he said, there's a notable, notable deliverances must be recorded and their fame emblazoned. All the saints should be informed of the Lord's goodness. The theme is worthy of the largest assembly. The experience of a believer is a subject fit for an assembled universe to hear about. Most men publish their grief. Good men should proclaim their mercies. Among friends and foes will I glorify the God of my salvation. Praise, personal praise, public praise, perpetual praise should be the daily revenue of the King of Heaven. Thus, for the second time, David's prayer ends in praise, as indeed all prayer should. Do you desire more and more to abide in Christ, even in suffering? Perhaps especially in suffering. Among the fellowship of his people, are you willing to suffer together? I mean, I, I'm not a prophet or son of a prophet. None of you are either. There are no prophets or prophetesses here. But you, just a casual student of history, particularly church history, will tell us that the, the season of relative peace and prosperity that our nation has known is historically an anomaly. The Lord may, may preserve that peace for another 200 years. I don't know. But we do know, historically, God's people have not done much other than suffer. That, that, is, that is the reasonable expectation for us as his people. And, and if that's the case, we especially need to understand how do we pray a psalm like Psalm 35? How do we put these things into practice? How do we, how do we take comfort and solace in the fact that, that when we are opposed as God's people, when we are opposed for the sake of righteousness, that it is God himself that's being attacked. And, and we can pray in that way. God, your name is being blasphemed. The name of David means nothing. The name Shiflet means nothing. But God's name is being blasphemed. And that it's God's people will suffer for doing the right thing. That it's the normal experience of Christians throughout history to suffer, sometimes immensely, for the very fact that we're living righteously. The very fact that we speak true words. The very fact that we've loved our neighbor. Sometimes enough to wound him. To tell him, if you do not turn from that sin, God is going to judge you and condemn you to eternal destruction. I want to do good for you. And we're hated for it. And the proper response to that is, is to wait upon the Lord in prayer. See, our flesh wants to, to lash back out. Return reviling for or reviling, right? But we are to wait upon the Lord in prayer to pray specifically for the destruction of God's enemies, for the deliverance of God's people. Prayer of praise and thanksgiving for the deliverance that we have received and, and to pray that God would increase the faith and assurance of those who are enduring 
those hardships and persecutions. And, and remembering, as we think about all the things that our, our, our hearts may naturally desire with respect to companionship and fellowship, that there is a unique fellowship in suffering. We may not enjoy it today. This is the writer of Hebrews says, no, no discipline is pleasant in the moment, but it brings forth fruit. Psalm 35 and others like it help us to pray in these ways, remembering these, these are things that are true. Because your heart, my heart, will tell us other things. We will get, we talked about this in Sunday school. There's, there's this, uh, we saw this in Genesis 3, and we've seen it over and over and over and over again throughout history. Hath God really said? God gives to us in his word a reality. And our own flesh will say, I don't like that reality. I want to craft for myself a different reality. Um, Some in our culture have taken that to perplexing degrees. But we are equally prone, aren't we? Kind of creating our own reality. And disciplining ourselves to pray in the Psalms helps to push back against the flesh, push back against those impulses that remain in us. May the Lord give us a grace to understand and grace to believe these things and grace to put them into practice. So let's pray. Our Father, you are a good and, and gracious God. We thank you that your word tells us the truth that you have not left us in our sin, you've not left us in our confusion, you've not left us in in a a state of delusion about the world and about our our own hearts and affections, but you have told us plainly who we are outside of Christ. I pray that this word today would take root among your people, that we would would grow in our assurance of salvation, that we would grow in our, our, our fervency and the urgency of our prayers for those in our own families and communities and nation and, and the nations of the world where your people are suffering. We pray that in, by this means that we will grow in our love for you and our love for one another. Amen.